Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, quite a daunting prospect um, to talk about Brexit, and I'm conscious that everyone is pretty much Brexited out um, over the last couple of years. I'm also pleased to see that in, even in a roundtable discussion, there are seats at the front that are still empty, so please do come down and fill them up if it's, if it's easier. Um, but, yeah, as I say, I'm talking about Brexit. It's, so there is a slight sort of exhaustion when it comes to Brexit. We're all conscious of the ongoing negotiations, uh, and we all have our views about, A, whether we should be having the negotiations at all, and B, how, how well or, or poorly they've been conducted. Um, but I'll try to steer away from as much commentary on that, at least whilst I'm being recorded for the podcast, um, but happy to take questions afterwards. Um, as was said, I've spent 13 years uh, in doing sort of public international law work in the government context, um, six of which are in the Foreign Office based in London, um, working on international criminal courts and our engagement with the ICC, drafting of sanctions at the UN. Uh, I was in Iraq for nine months, worked on Guantanamo litigation, Syria, ISIL, when I was at the Attorney General's office, was, um, ISIL was, um, was just invading Iraq, in fact. Um, uh, we've dealt with issues around sort of differing notions of self-defence in a world where the nation of threats have changed and issues around cybercrime, um, especially state-sponsored cybercrime, were on the rise. All issues I've covered at different times in my career. So why, why on earth would we co be covering something around Brexit? Um, I suppose, <laughs> uh, not least because when I joined the Foreign Office 13 years ago, it covered public international law, it covered judicial review issues, and it covered EU issues. And the one thing, the one thing I was very, very clear on when I started my career was I did not want to be doing EU law. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, that didn't go so well, and I spent three years in Brussels doing negotiations for the UK, um, both as a negotiator uh, and also as a, as a legal advisor, so dealing with sort of laws that effectively became domestic law as well as international trade agreements and other international agreements that the EU is in the process of, of um, conducting. And the reason, I suppose, my sort of conversion, if you like, to interest in EU law as part of a sort of a sector of, of international law and PIL it's because I genuinely find it interesting how it sort of comes at the intersection of, of international um, and public international legal issues, domestic issues, be it on the regulatory or the constitutional basis, and the sort of practical and the sort of political economy of, uh, of, of European law, which really, I think, brings some of these issues alive. I remember being in number 10 and having, frankly, what I found quite tedious discussions, but necessary discussions with quite senior members of the then government talking about whether public international law was really law because how would you enforce it and all the other sort of questions that I'm sure you've come across in your discussions and debates with colleagues and others around, around the table. Um, but it really, it, it does have a direct impact and I find it, in that sense, an endlessly fascinating uh, topic. And Brexit, I think, in particular, um, is a sort of, if not a paradigm, it's a good example of how international law, albeit not, um, is a factor, not the only factor, but nonetheless a key factor, I think, in some of, um, some of how, you know, how the negotiations have been developed how they, and how they may unfold. It's, it's a pretty simple thesis uh, I have. It's uh, six, six things I want to cover, but my, my thesis is pretty simple, which is that the international, international law is part of the subsisting EU legal order as part of the UK's place in that EU legal order as part of as the UK's place in the future international trade uh, arena um, all play a key part in um, public international place a key part in all of those elements and also frankly in the practical side which I'll touch on at the end which I've dealt with more as a sort of commercial lawyer 
Um, but the practical side of what companies are doing and how they are uh, engaging with the Brexit um, reality and the Brexit, um, and a new Brexit paradigm or post-Brexit paradigm of the UK. Now, I'm conscious that I don't want you to be put off by the slides. It's built as a discussion group. And um, when I started at Exeter, which is my, my university, my then Roman law tutor said, good morning. And he then said, um, I teach at Cambridge, Oxford and Exeter. And in Cambridge, they look out, they, um, they say good morning because they're polite. In Oxford, they look out of the window and say, yes, it is a good morning because they're clever in Oxford. And in Exeter, they write it down. <laughs> so, not, not to put down my, my former university, but simply to say the point, don't be fooled by the slides. If you've got any questions as we go through, do raise your hands, ask any questions you have. Um, alternatively, I think there's plenty of time at the end for, for discussions. But just to dive in, um, and to give a bit of background, because, again, I'm slightly conscious that uh, for a lot of public international lawyers, uh, the EU is not necessarily a well-known entity. Um, and, but it is fundamentally a treaty-based legal order. Um, of course, it started back with the uh, coal and, European Coal and Steel Community, uh, the ESC, uh, the Eratum, and of course the Treaty of Rome, which is one we all know much better now in the form of the Treaty on the European Union, the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union, the Lisbon Treaty, which people are more familiar with. And it's, it's a treaty-based body, the, and it's about conferred powers. So what powers are conferred on it? Again, Article 2 of the uh, Treaty of the TFEU clearly states what those are. It's around exclusive competence, competence that's given to the European Union. It's around shared competence, again, shared between the European Union and member states, and cooperation, so where there is no formal treaty structure, but actually the, the two entities, the EU and the member states, member states in the constituent parts, um, cooperate and, and, um, and engage on issues such as education. Um, outside of those areas, it remains a matter, all matters of competence are for member states alone, um, and including some of the areas of EU competence, whether a um, case for national security is made, although that's A, rarely done, and B, rarely agreed. And of course, it's got a lot of supranational institutions, um, again, ones we'll all be familiar with, I think that give the, the EU a very different flavour in the international legal order from most. The Commission, very powerful body, the Council, the constituent parts of the member states forming and sitting as the council, and then the European Parliament, again, a sort of a, the, the representative body of the, in the EU, or supposed representative body, that's gaining a, a lot of traction as, a, as, a, as the elected representatives as they, as they put themselves forward. And it's an extraordinarily powerful organisation and set of institutions. It's Obviously, there's clearly the, the ability to make law, but those laws have direct effect. There's a judiciary that opines on them. Um, and there is, as I say, a growing sense of um, uh, democratic legitimacy that uh, particularly the European Parliament is advancing uh, for the EU as a whole. So it's, um, it's moved uh, and, very, and will continue to move, I think, from very much a sort of intergovernmental arrangement to the supranational one, and that is embedded in the European Union itself, in the, in the treaties, which talks about an ever closer union. Um, at the time of the UK's renegotiation with the EU, when we were trying to establish a new relationship um, under the Cameron government, uh, the then Prime, Dutch Prime Minister said, because the UK, one of the UK's key negotiating asks um, was to remove or to, to address the issues that talk about an ever closer union in the treaties. 
And the then Prime Minister for the Netherlands said, but David, these are just words. True, but I think they do belie a more sort of practical um, uh, and, a, and, a, and a sense of ever sort of closer integration advanced by some of the member states, but also by the, by the EU uh, and the Commission in particular itself. And you do see that both in the sort of collapsing of the pillars, which used to be separate in terms of justice and home affairs, the single market and the common foreign security policy, into a system whereby, although the legalities and the process of developing these laws and these positions are, are still somewhat separate, actually the structure in which they're incorporated is, is uh, very much more of a, of a single whole. And it's also powerful as a sort of practical context, as a practical um, uh, body and a practical institution. Because you get times when getting 27, 28 world leaders, um, albeit European world leaders, uh, into a room at the same time is extraordinarily difficult. What the EU does is give you a system whereby those, those leaders are brought together at a minimum three or four times a year, now much more frequently, especially with the Eurozone crisis. But they're brought together much more frequently. And whether they're sitting in the, in the context of the European Union or they flick a switch and suddenly are an intergovernmental uh, body of independent member states making a separate decision or a treaty-based or, or uh, political declaration. The simple fact of the matter and the physicality of that, their engagement, I think, means that you start to see the EU as a very different and much more sort of, as a much stronger force um, uh, on the international legal stage. So it's that sort of reality of sitting in a room like this and simply shifting from, a, from, a, from an EU format to an intergovernmental format and the ability to get business done um, on the international legal stages and the, from, a very, from a very practical um, context is, is, was phenomenally important. Um, but the Commission, whatever the, whatever, um, well, the Commission itself, as I said, is within the EU treaties, the guardian of those treaties, um, its job is to make sure that member states do not encroach upon its competence and the competence of the EU, and of course that the EU doesn't encroach, in theory, upon the competence of the member states. I would say that the Commission, over a number of years, has continued to try and push those boundaries. And I can think of just one example, um, well, I can give one example, I can think of many, um, where I saw a note, an internal note from the Commission, which talked about, it was a footnote, in the context of the drafting of and the conclusion of treaties between the EU and third countries. Talked about, um, just as a small footnote, just a, almost, almost an administrative detail, but actually, where these treaties cover matters of member state competence, the EU should still sign it as the EU alone. Now, in the EU context, you have a number of different types of treaties, and one of those is a, is a mixed competence treaty. So something that, as I said at the beginning, where the EU has exclusive competence, of course, it's responsible for negotiating setting those negotiating parameters, negotiating and concluding the agreement. In areas where it's outside of the EU competence, often it needs, there's a political need to, to have a wider treaty that incorporates a number of different things. Again, it could be on the softer side around education or cooperation or what have you, on different areas of, of, uh, of intergovernmental relationships. But those should then be formed and signed as a, as a, as a mixed treaty. So the EU in its parts and the 27 member states in their constituent parts. But of course, that creates just some, some administrative and time uh, difficulties. Because not only does the EU then have to agree and finalise this, but every member state um, around the EU has to agree. So it has to go through their domestic regulatory um, processes and constitutional processes before it can be finalised. 
Hence, you get the agreement between the EU and Canada being held up for some period by the Walloon government in, um, in Belgium. Um, now, so to try and, to try and uh, address that concern and to try and address, frankly, from a, what would seem like a common sense point of view, this footnote at the bottom of a Commission um, internal document simply says, well, we should from now on just push for these things to be signed by the Commission and by the EU alone and not by the Member States. Actually, when you're looking at the treaty, a treaty-based legal order, that's quite, a, quite, a, quite an enormous step to take, albeit on a footnote buried in page 32 of an internal memo to the Commission. And actually, it was the UK often that ended up being the guardian against such activities for reasons both, um, well, primarily political, um, but also legal that you can imagine. Um, question mark, what does the EU look like? Um, both in this context, but frankly in a, sort of in a much broader context once the UK leaves the EU. So I'm not going to look particularly at what the EU legal order looks post-Brexit, post, uh, but actually it's this sort of practical thing. I, I, I wonder where the EU will go and how, what, what the impact will be of the UK's departure. Um, and say it's that sort of internal memo, that approach in the Commission which was trying to push at those boundaries that you start to see reflected in some of the later treaty um, later treaty law. Um, so Protocol 25, for example, of the um, TFEU states that talks about areas of shared competence where at one point the Commission had been arguing to say in an area of, say, of environmental law where we have shared competence, once we take a particular action, albeit on a very small part of environmental law, then actually the EU has competence in that whole area and it becomes an area of exclusive competence to the EU not something you can imagine the UK was particularly fond of, um, under any colour of government, frankly. Uh, so again, you've seen, in fact, Protocol 25, a sort of a clear setting of the boundaries to say, if it acts in an area of shared competence, then it just covers that area, not the entirety of that of the, uh, of the um, subject matter. Um, and why is it important? I think it's because when I was at university um, and taking notes on everything in my lectures, uh, there was a big discussion around whether the UK can ever actually leave the EU, whether it's so ingrained in our constitutional processes uh, now because of the supranational nature of the EU, because of the role of the Commission, because of the ECJ, because of its integration into UK law, whether the UK could ever leave the EU. I mean, I think it, it's demonstrable um, legally, practically, and, um, uh, and probably manifestly, uh, the answer is, is yes, we can. Um, that doesn't mean it's not messy, of course. And that's where the, um, the, the questions about what that future looks like, um, I think, really cut into the, the questions that we will hear and the issues we will hear on the radio, on the TV, in debates and discussions, day in, day out. And we've heard for the last two and a half years, and we'll frankly hear about them, I'm afraid, for quite a long time to come. Again, just briefly, without wishing to, conscious of taking up quite a lot of time already, but without wishing to labour the point of the foundations, because I do think it... it impacts on what that future looks like and how we go about approaching it. And also, I think it's, to me, it's really a good example of how public international law has helped shape the discussion um, around the EU, uh, if not being necessarily the only, of course, issue at play. And the EU, the Treaty of Rome, uh, forms, of forms the foundation of the UK's um, engagement with the EU. It acceded to the Treaty of Rome, and it incorporated that in a traditional sense for the UK at least, in the dualist context, into the UK law through the European Communities Act of 1972. Um, that Act, and particularly Article um, Section 2.1 of the Act, will be repealed by Section 1 of the Withdrawal Act, 
of uh, 1918, of 2018 rather. Um, and of course, through that act, we incorporate all the existing EU law into UK law, um, with some exceptions, notably around the supremacy of EU law and the role of the um, European courts. But um, it is in that sort of more traditional dualist context in which the EU's, UK's relationship with the EU is, is very much set. And it's also in that context that I think the how one affects, or how the UK has affected its departure from the EU is, again, quite an interesting case, picking up on the Miller, the Miller discussion in the Supreme Court. Um, again, core legal principles, at least for the UK context, and I can see some old Foreign Office colleagues in the audience, about the dualist notion of, of um, the dualist approach of the UK to international law and incorporation into UK law, um, and what the royal prerogative permits um, on the international stage. And the argument from the government um, and from our old FCO colleagues made in the Supreme Court, sadly, I think it was, it was a missed opportunity, um, not for want of trying from the FCA, I think, but uh, a missed opportunity that these points weren't made earlier um, in the High Court. But points made very clearly, I think, in the Supreme Court context about the royal prerogative and the case that um, uh, it was, it is the UK's position on the international stage that the government, under the royal prerogative and the crown prerogative, can act on international, on, in relation to international treaties and international law. Um, and therefore, on that basis, the question arose as to whether the UK was able to unilaterally withdraw from the EU treaties under Article 50 by simply sending in the notification, as would be normal in the royal prerogative context, I think, um, to... to to notify the EU that would, would be leaving um, the, uh, the EU. Uh, the question then was, would that effectively have rendered the 1972 Act uh, useless, and therefore was it possible for the UK to act in that way? Now, the, the dissenting judgment of the Supreme Court, it was, an, it was a full court hearing the case, three judges um, said the European Communities Act does not impose, and I think they agreed to the Foreign Office point here, does not impose any requirement on the EUK's membership of the EU, and so should not be seen as limiting the Crown's prerogative. Um, that was a position, as I said, are, are advanced by the government. It was not, however, the position taken by the majority of the Supreme Court, which said, um, the notice, and I'm quoting, has the inevitable effect, the inevitable effect, of making a fundamental change to the... Um, to the constitutional sources uh, of the of UK law by denying, um, effectively by denying the effect of EU law in the UK. So, absent an explicit, um, or that the Supreme Court said it would have been open to the Parliament to provide an explicit consent um, in the European Communities Act for the government to withdraw, but it had not done so, and as on that basis, it required parliamentary approval before the the um, the notification to withdraw could be could be put forward. So, to my mind, that case is an interesting example, and we'll see where it may lead, and there may be some discussion and debate around this in terms of the UK's own position with regard to international law, and it seems to me to straddle that sort of the monist dualist approach. Can it be particularly um, confined to its facts and the particular constitutional nature of the, of the decision or not, or does there, are there wider ramifications um, which, of course, the Foreign Office and others would have been conscious of when making the case before the, the EU. So, again, to my mind, I, I, this is about how the, um, 
how international law and public international law can shape some of the discussion, both at the constitutional level and the political level, um, and frankly, the practical level about how the UK and whether the UK can leave the EU, and if so, how it does so. Then it's more difficult stuff, if that's uh, the right word for it, but the, the untangling of the agreement. Um, the withdrawal agreement, if it ever comes to be agreed and settled, will be an international agreement in the way of, of, uh, of these things, covering, but just covering, issues around people, around money, around some of the practical issues about goods on the market and how they are to be treated and the rights they have in terms of how they trans transfer across borders and the impact on customs provisions. But it doesn't cover the future formal relationship of the EU. That the formal future relationship of the EU would governed by a future European um, uh, Union and UK trade agreement of some description. But there will be at least, in theory, a political statement running some 50 pages, if agreed, around what that future relationship will look like. So I suppose part of my question, and I still deal with this in the context of the untangling, is because what, if any, role does that particular legal document have, uh, or that particular political commitment have? Uh, it's a question, I think, probably more of political concern than, than others, and it's um, the likes of Michael Gove who put this forward as the just agree something, because once you get out the door, you can then rearrange, you can then renegotiate and agree a whole new set of, uh, of terms. But if you don't get out the door, then we'll, st we'll still be within the EU. And frankly, I would have thought that was a case that was being, would be made more fervently by some of the Brexiteers. Because once you do leave, actually, uh, it's about, you can then look at what that future UK-EU relationship uh, looks like. But having agreed a political declaration, does it have any particular binding legal effect? I think the main focus would be, um, insofar as the withdrawal agreement itself, there's a binding treaty between the UK and the EU um, on withdrawal, uh, is uncertain, then I think you could have some interpretive value um, looking at articles 26 of the VCLT in terms of interpreting treaties in good faith, um, and article 31 and 30, um, yeah, 31 around um, using contemporaneous documents and agreements and um, discussions to interpret particular treaties. So it may have an interpretive value in terms of the withdrawal agreement, but of course it's still very much, and it will have a political value, which I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't underestimate, um, but nonetheless a political value uh, in the context of the future UK and EU relationships. Uh, and then the question of Ireland, which is um, really the focus, the Gordian knot of the, uh, of the negotiations at the moment. Uh, the big question is for the UK, from a political point of view, is that they want to leave the customs union because then it means Liam Fox can trot around the world and negotiate free trade agreements because if we're in the customs union, he says, um, or the government says, will not be possible. Leaving aside the fact that, of course, the customs union covers goods, if you're looking at a UK economy which is 80% services, you would think Mr Fox would have something to negotiate um, absent a goods issue or good, uh, goods negotiations uh, in any event. But nonetheless, that is the UK's objective. And the UK and the EU's objective, of course, is to retain the, um, uh, the integrity of the European Union as a whole. Um, added to which, of course, you've got the agreement um, between the UK and Ireland, both of which the UK and the EU want to maintain around the Good Friday, on the Good Friday Agreement. Um, again, an international treaty, again, um, having a massive impact on the uh, negotiations as a whole. And... Um, 
We all know that the Good Friday Agreements formed the foundation of peace and shared governance in Ireland for the last 20 years um, and includes, in part, the requirement not to have border posts. And we've all heard about this in the news, but actually, to me, it's that sort of shaping, um, both through this international agreement, but also the wider um, uh, international trading legal order that really have formed the basis and, and at least shaped the discussions around the... the uh, the UK's departure and, and the issue around the customs union. Um, and you often hear that, from particularly from this side of the channel in the UK, that, well, actually, the UK is never going to construct a, a border in Northern Ireland. So really, it will come down to the EU constructing the border in Northern Ireland. So, and they're not going to do that, surely. Or if they are, then they're the, bad, they're the, they're the baddies. Um, that's all fine in theory. But actually, again... <laughs> This is the point made by both by the EU and by some commentators in the UK who can, uh, can bear to make it, is that under international trade law, of course, if we are going to provide the benefit of no border checks, including on, 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 health, on animals and plant food and plants, we're going to provide no border checks between the UK and the EU and vice versa, then under international principles, you have to provide the same benefit to all other countries that you're trading with, unless you are in a trading agreement. So it's not simply a question of saying, well, we won't construct a border with Northern Ireland, because what we're doing is providing a benefit to the EU. We would then be obliged, under WTO law and rules, to provide to others. And the only way you can get out of that obligation is if you have a trading agreement that covers a substantial part of your trade, quote-unquote substantial part of the trade. And Again, the question about how much, what is substantial part, but certainly the EU's position is it's about 80% of your trade. So absent a trading agreement, it's not simply a question of saying, well, we're going to throw our borders open, because then you have a problem of not doing it for, this, for, for every other country in the world. Now, I don't care how much Liam Fox says we are going to be in a brave new world and the UK is going to be a free trading nation. Um, we're not going to throw up our borders without any checks for the, for the entirety of the world. Fact. So, again... I don't want to overplay the point, um, but, and I don't want to downplay the political reality of, of the Northern Ireland question, but it does seem to me that issues around public international law, um, both whether it's around bilateral international agreements between two states or around multilateral agreements and the sort of international trading system, plays an important part in shaping that discussion at the very least, if not putting, um, uh, putting it clearly between sort of um, clearly defined legal parameters. So... The untangling is, is obviously difficult, and we'll see if the next week or so that is agreement is reached between the UK and the EU. Big question mark over whether that then gets through the UK Parliament, but that's for another headache for another time. And the question is about um, the future and the role of public international law in that context. And again, frankly, international trade agreements, particularly around future treaties, free trade agreements between the UK and the EU and the WTO arrangements are going to be the key building blocks, both international arrangements and international agreements, the key building blocks of the UK's future um, trading relationships post-Brexit. Now, the UK, the UK and the EU uh, will take some form of free trade agreement in some way, shape or form. There are different contexts. You can take CETA, um, you can take... Uh, um, the EA model, they all come with different levels of commitments 
um, and they again have different notions and different institutions within them that um, take you either to a, the traditional bilateral international arrangements and agreements <coughs> or more of a supernatural context, uh, supernational context, if you're looking at situations such as the European economic area. So the traditional bilateral relationship of, of the Canada-EU agreement, where you have dispute resolution procedures and arbitrations that, that we'll be familiar with, um, or the European economic area, or somewhere in between where you're looking at something like Ukraine, where there are references to the European Court of Justice and a sort of a hybrid model. But again, all of which based around fundamental familiar um, public international law principles. Then there's the question, the sort of interesting issue around the WTO. Again, it's been in the news in the last week. Um, the first issue, there's two, two real issues, I think. The first issue was whether the UK um, would be a member of the WTO as of right, um, or whether it would have to accede um, to the WTO again as an independent member. I think that's been put to bed um, to some extent, but it was a discussion uh, about 18 months ago. Um, and it's not an academic discussion, because actually, if you look at the conditions under which you know, A, all parties have to agree. You look at the conditions and under which um, some membership was offered, in particular to Russia and China, yes, in particular circumstances, but what it does do is leverage um, or provide greater leverage in any trade negotiations if certain countries have the right to block accession <coughs> to the WTO in other contexts. So again, traditional notions of, of, of public international law shaping or potentially shaping the UK's future post-Brexit um, post world and the second question, which is still very much live, is around what that UK-EU um, relationship looks like in the WTO itself. And this goes down to what's called the schedules that the EU and the UK will have in the WTO. Again, quite, to some extent, quite techy things, things quite related to that of the sort of public international trade lawyer rather than, than others, perhaps. But nonetheless, hugely important in terms of what that trading relationship looks like and hugely important from the political point of view. The amount of times you hear that we'll simply go to WTO trading, um, trading mechanisms and that'll all be fine. There are so many problems with that statement, it's unbelievable. But just to take the example of the issue the UK is currently folks, folks facing, which is around trade, um, trade quotas, tariff rate quotas. So... The proposal put forward by the UK was that actually we will just look at previous trading relationships and our previous trade flows between the EU and you know and the rest of the world, and we'll just divide them up, depending on historic use, we'll divide them up between the UK and the EU and we'll all carry on, we'll be fine. Anticipating this, eight, seven or eight countries, I've got the list, Argentina, Brazil, Canada, New Zealand, Thailand, the US and Uruguay, so a lot of our sort of partners will be supposedly having bilateral trading relationships with in this brave new world, wrote in anticipation of the UK and the EU's position on 26th of September last year, saying, well, we know you're thinking of this, but actually that's not really, that's not really how we think things should work out. Because the reality for many of these countries and for their businesses operating is that if I'm shipping 100,000 chickens, frozen chickens from Brazil, turns out frozen chickens from Brazil is the big thing. If I'm shipping 100,000 frozen chickens from Brazil to, um, and they all go to the UK, do I really want my tariff rate quota to be divided between the UK with 100% and the EU with none? But actually what I'm doing with those chickens is sending them to the UK and then sending them on because of a tariff-free um, and tariff, non-tariff barrier-free trade with the rest of the EU. I'm sending them to the UK and then they have onward transmission to the rest of Europe. 
um, or I'm processing them in the UK, adding some value and then sending them on in different forms and products or chicken wings as opposed to a whole chicken or whatever it may be. Um, that's a very different reality from saying, actually, I'm then prevented from sending any of my frozen chickens to the big market in the EU that I would otherwise have. So actually, the reality of what the EU and UK were presenting, whilst it may sort of seem um, perfectly sensible and it was presented as sort of business as usual, actually, the reality of what a lot of these countries are saying is that just that's not on, that's not what we, uh, that's not something we can agree to. And I think formally, that they would, Liam Fox presented something to Parliament last week or the week before saying there have been formal objections and so we will in the end have to go without um, set schedules. There will be, I think, um, uncertified schedules uh, that the UK will operate on under the WTO uh, post-Brexit. Now, that's not altogether the end of the world. It's not altogether unfamiliar. The EU has been um, trading on some un, um, uncertified schedules ever since the accession of the of the 10 countries in 2005-2007 happened. So, again, for the same reasons, part of other WTO members objected to simply pulling together all the uh, tariff rate quotas in that context. Um, and so the EU has been trading on on, on uh, uncertified schedules. So it's not the end of the world, but there is a sort of a reality check to some of the simplicity that's been put forward, I think, by, by the government. Um, but, so I think it's whatever position the UK ends up in the WTO and whatever agreement the UK has with the EU will be the, fun, the, you know, the fundamental building blocks between uh, for the UK's trading relationships with the rest of the world. And there are key things then about the country trade agreements. Again, bilateral investment, um, bilateral uh, trade agreements. Uh, the EU at the moment, of which of course the UK is a part, has 236 treaties by all accounts covering a number of things from air services to uh, particular um, uh, access for services or telecommunications, what have you. Of those, about 40 of them are, are trading agreements with about 80 countries, so some of them with entire blocks of, of countries. And the event of a, a sort of an orderly Brexit, a transition uh, period in place, uh, that's, that's addressed in Article 124 of the UK-EU Withdrawal Agreement, and it simply says, I can read it out if it's helpful, but probably not, um, but it basically says the UK will um, not undermine the position of the EU in any um, in any institutions in which it's a part during the transition period, and um, the UK will also be bound by the obligations stemming from those agreements to which it was a party whilst a member of the EU. It also says, this is what I think is you know, particularly interesting to focus on, is the footnote again maybe we, we like footnotes in this context but in the footnote of article 124 it simply says that the union will notify other parties to these agreements that during the transition period the uk will be treated as a member state for the purposes of those agreements the uk took a slightly different tone and slightly um, more emollient one in a technical note it issued which said um, and it relied upon article 31 of the vienna convention on the law of treaties and it states that that, that, that article um, notes that a treaty is to be interpreted in its context, which can include subsequent agreement between the parties um, regarding its interpretation and application. Um, the, the note also says that the form of that agreement can take many different, um, will be flexible and will be a matter for discussion. So I think what the UK has done at least um, is recognise that those changes and developments are a matter for agreement between the third party as well. And 
but advances the sort of public international law framework and context in which that can be that can be delivered. Um, in the event of a hard Brexit, it's in a slightly more difficult, tricky position um, because the UK um, obviously crashes out of the EU. It becomes a third country. It's no longer covered by those by those um, by those third country agreements. Um, you'll have to make a new trade deal with those countries, um, and you'll have to do that you know, on the basis of. Uh, frankly, negotiations with, with whatever the third countries would agree. Now, part of the difficulty at the moment is that colleagues, in fact, old colleagues of ours from the Foreign Office who are now rebadged as trade experts and trade lawyers in the Department of International Trade are having to prepare for both scenarios. So in the event that we have a, a softer Brexit and transition, various agreements will continue, but they will want to have a detailed consideration and negotiation of those of those third country trade agreements in due course, and you want to be doing the thinking around that. But they're also at the same time having to do the planning for a hard Brexit, which is we end up crashing out, we are not a party to those third country agreements. And that's all very interesting, and imagine on a practical level that's quite difficult. There's also um, some, uh, it's, it's, practical, it's practically very difficult for the individuals and negotiators and, and officials trying to think through the different options. It's also um, potentially difficult in the terms of how they are negotiated because on a very practical level, if I am importing a particular product from South Korea and I'm relying upon the relationship between the, U between EU, between the UK and South Korea in terms of zero tariffs on a particular good, if the UK and EU no longer have that arrangement, suddenly you have 10% added to your costs simply on the tariffs issue, plus often about 10% again, say, on, a, on the non-tariff barriers, all the forms you have to fill out, all the uh, regulatory issues that may not be aligned. So if those agreements aren't in place, you immediately, day one, have some real financial consequences for, for companies um, dealing with it. Um, and you also have some uncertainty because... Will there be any rollover at all? Quite possibly. Do you change your supply chains? Difficult to know, difficult to calculate because you don't know whether these things will be rolled over. We know the UK government is prioritising key trade agreements to try to roll over. Um, in an ideal world, they roll over all of them. How do you renegotiate 40? Well, there are lots of different options, but one of them could simply say, let's take it, lift and shift, and really say, where it says UK, let's read the EU, and frankly, let's all make it up when we find a particular hole or gap. Uh, as we go along, or do you simply say we're going to focus on do one or two or five or ten properly, but then there's a massive impact on the trade flows coming from other trade other other parts of the world. So a real problem in terms of what these third country agreements um, look like in the future. Of course, there'll always there will be even in the context of a transition, those will have to be renegotiated. But you have at least 18 more months to think that through and be a little bit more ordered about it. Um, frankly, I think the UK-EU negotiations will go well beyond the next 18 months, and so you'll have uh, more time to, to think about those third-country agreements. And then finally, on the uh, international states context, there's the autonomous trade measures. Now, ostensibly, those are um, measures the UK can decide to take or not, be it sort of around import or export controls, um, trade defence issues, but, also, but then some elements of that, such as um, systems of preferences you give in a trade context, particularly to developing countries um, around uh, under, uh, the GSP, the general systems of preferences. Again, how that is developed and applied, a matter of uh, law under the WTO um, regime. Um, 
in the UK's GIF, but again governed by public international law and, and international treaties. So it's not only, just to finish off, the context of um, academic thought and where we go um, in the negotiations and the political um, uh, political impact of that, where I think PIL has played an interesting role in shaping some of these discussions, or at least framing them, but also on the practical side. So I spend my time now, um, I say I left, I left government, or I left the civil service part of the uh, government in February 2016, so before the referendum. Um, I always say, therefore, it's not my fault. But spent the last two and a half, three years with companies working about what the practical implications of, of Brexit may be. And where do we start? Well, we start with what the horror story looks like, which is WTO. Um, and it's, you know, what are the baseline for tariffs? What is, it, what is open to the government to do within the international legal framework? Again, WTO is, a, is the obvious starting point, but there are other things around um, intellectual property, around climate change, which were both which the UK has signed up to in its, in its own right um, and therefore can continue to govern its obligations as a matter of UK law. Um, so it's a sort of, what is the sort of baseline is really often governed by, with so much uncertainty on a political context, it's often really governed by what does the law say is the bare minimum? And that's actually where we start with the analysis with our, with our companies and with our clients. And I've frankly worked with NGOs, governments, uh, commercial sectors and, and, and sort of pan-European global clients and all of it all of which is what is the baseline um, and that is really governed and set out by public international law so when I think back to the days of those discussions in number 10 with certain members of the then government about whether public international law is really law uh, because it's in can it be enforced or not I think of a couple of things firstly the my very first week in the foreign office where our former boss, Michael Wood, had written, written and, uh, and reminded us that actually as Foreign Office lawyers, sometimes the enforcement of public international law comes down to the lawyers in government to remind people that actually there are obligations there. And sometimes that's not always easy to do. Sometimes you have to say, you know, you're reminded of why a particular issue, albeit constraining a politician at any given time, why a particular matter of public international law or treaty law has developed. And it's often because there is a, a, a greater national need um, and of course a, a benefit on the international uh, plane as well but often frankly a very crucial national need for these things um, that's and that need is not just evident in the, the political world in Whitehall but also in the practical world of, of, of business and of governments and of those you know, on a citizen's basis as we are travelling around the world and, and interacting uh, with with our um, you know, interacting and travelling and doing whatever we want to do as normal human beings around the world and very much in the business context so why do we have international law is it important personally it's part of my sort of inner soul I suppose um, but it also provides that certainty when actually many other things particularly in the political context that we've seen now and have heard I'm afraid for the last couple of years post-Brexit um, when the political context remains um, in great flux and with great debate around it, at least there is some certainty that is provided for by PIL. And I think that's why I chose Brexit, I'm afraid. Partly because also I agreed to do this six months ago, thinking we'd be, we'd be looking at it from some distance. Um, I'm sorry to say that we're still very much in the throes of it. 
But, uh, but I do think that looking at how some of the international treaties on a sort of multilateral basis, on a bilateral basis, um, come together, shape um, and instruct the discussion that we're having in the UK and across the channel in the EU and shape those negotiations and also our future. You know, it's a great example of how all these three elements, the, the international legal, the domestic political and constitutional and the sort of political economy um, all come together in one place. So I hope I haven't overrun my time, but thank you very much for, for listening. <laughs>